Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Stewardship podcast. I'm your host, Dave Warners, one of the editors of Beyond Stewardship, New Approaches to Creation Care. Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at calvin.edu slash press and from major online retailers. The Beyond Stewardship podcast is a series of interviews with the chapter authors of Beyond Stewardship. My guest today is my close friend and co-director of Plastic Creek Stewards, Gail Gunst Hefner, author of Chapter 11 in Beyond Stewardship, which is titled Making Visible the Invisible. Welcome, Gail. Thank you, Dave. It's good to be here. All right. Now, Gail, I know you as a friend and a colleague and uh, director of community engagement at Calvin University, but why don't you introduce yourself a little more fully for our listeners? Okay, well, my, my chapter is about environmental racism, so I thought maybe I could say something about how those two issues, environmental and racism, came to be important to me. That sounds great. And I guess when I think about the environmental issues or sustainability issues, I, I have to go back to when I was growing up. My, my father was a nuclear physicist and did years of research um, on nuclear energy. And near the end of his career, he talked a lot about how he felt the nuclear... Um, waste issue was such a significant thing that really we couldn't depend on nuclear energy as a way for the future. And he talked a lot about how there needs to be more research and development in renewable energy. Hmm. So it wasn't just that he changed his, his understanding of his own vocation. He also made personal lifestyle changes that had a big impact on oh, me as, as a high school college student. So for example, he decided with the energy crisis, this is the late 70s, he decided we're going to become a one-car family. Mm-hmm. And there were four drivers in the family, and mm-hmm. I was a teenager, and I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> I don't want to have to have one car in the family. So it had an impact on me, and it made me start thinking about mm-hmm. well, how do we care for the earth, mm-hmm. and how do we live in such a way that our lives have a positive impact rather than a negative impact. Mm-hmm. And my dad took his faith quite seriously, and so as a, having a, a father who was a Christian scientist care about these issues really had an impact on my formation as a person. Mm-hmm. Then fast forward a bit to when I was doing my own PhD study work, um, my, my field is urban studies, and as I learned more about what makes for healthy cities and what makes a healthy community, I began learning a lot about racism, mm-hmm. and my own dissertation was on institutional and structural racism, particularly in congregations. And so the issue of racism and how it plays out in our society is something that I've cared about since my own studies began. And as I began to see how racism occurs, even in environmental issues, mm-hmm. that's why I, I wanted to work on this chapter and be mm-hmm. a part of this, this project. All right, thank, thank you very much. Um, these two terms, environment and racism, really come together in the beginning of your chapter where you start out with the story that I find quite captivating. And I've thought about quite a bit since you first told it to me. So you encounter a grandfather and a grandson. Can you fill us in a little bit more on this, this uh, encounter? Sure. So one day, a group of um, colleagues and I were walking along uh, Plaster Creek, which is an urban waterway in Grand Rapids. It's considered the most contaminated urban waterway in this region. And um, we were walking along, talking about all kinds of things related to the water, the creek, and the watershed. And we rounded a bend, and right before us was an older man and a young boy fishing in Plaster Creek. Mm-hmm. And it completely caught me by surprise. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it was my surprise that I think really mm -hmm. caught my attention. It's like, what is a, what is a mm -hmm. grandfather, I suppose, I mean, it was, I thought a grandfather mm -hmm. and a grandson doing fishing. But what was particularly striking is they were African-American. Mm -hmm. And I realized this is the creek, section of the creek that's probably close to where they live. Mm -hmm. They, my assumption was that they're fishing in this creek not knowing that it's in such poor mm -hmm. condition and that it's really dangerous for them to be touching the water. Mm -hmm. And I had attention internally immediately, like do I speak up and say something? Mm -hmm. Or do I allow them their, their you know, it looked like a wonderful family moment, a grandfather teaching his grandson how to fish. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it's kind of intrusive of me to speak up. And mm -hmm. so I, I had this internal tension not sure what to say or do. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't say anything other yeah. than hello. Mm -hmm. um, so have you, as you've thought back on that, would you have done anything differently now that you've had more time to, to think about it? Oh, I still wrestle with this, I yeah. think, to be honest. As mm -hmm. a white person, I think it's very easy mm -hmm. to be seen as, oh, we have all the answers and we're telling you what you should do. And I, mm -hmm. so I'm hesitant to come across that way. I want to respect it's possible that they knew about the creek and they still made a decision that they wanted to, to fish mm -hmm. there and that's mm -hmm. their choice. So I, it's, like, it's difficult. I guess I, I could have stopped and told them more about the work of Plaster mm. Creek stewards trying to restore the creek yeah. and that might have been a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. But there's, the, there's a tension and it's related to a race dynamic for yeah. me. Feeling like as a white person I have certain privileges mm -hmm. and I want to share I want to disarm the privilege or, or share it so that other people are not facing the, uh, the uh, lack of privilege that I have. Mm -hmm. But, but it's, there's a tension about knowing when to speak and, and when, when to, to be silent. There's also just a very precious moment there, right, with a, a grandfather teaching a grandson uh, how to fish and they're having, having an intimate time together. And any sort of interruption of that, that almost like a sacred time that they're sharing right. together. Um, but yeah, then the whole issues of race uh, make it a lot more complicated. And we don't always know what the best thing is to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. I, I, it also has occurred to me that this story can offer a metaphor for maybe some larger tensions I think we all feel. Um, if we focus all the time on just what's wrong, we can get really discouraged and maybe overwhelmed, but if we ignore what's happening to creation, then we're not being faithful and we're not living honestly. And so I think that there's tensions there in, in all of our lives when we think about the state of the creation these days. Would you care to comment about that? Does well, that make sense? It does, it makes sense. And I think, I think if we only focus on the problems, and there are lots of problems obviously mm -hmm. with, the, with the earth and with the creation, if we focus just on that, it can be demoralizing. Mm -hmm. We have to recognize them, we have to see them and, and recognize them. But if we stop at just focusing on the, the problems, it's overwhelming and demoralizing, I think. Mm -hmm. I think we also have to, to consider and think about what we can do to be part of the solution. Yeah. We, as human beings, we have agency to make change and we can help bring restoration and healing. It's, it, we don't have to continue in the direction we're going, causing harm. So there are steps that we can take to promote restoration. And so I think you have to recognize the problems first mm -hmm. and carefully consider what steps can take, you can take to, to restore. But it requires, I think, some, some careful consideration. Yeah, and I think it, it, I'm, I'm comforted 
with the realization that we don't go at this by ourselves mm -hmm. and we have other people. I know just in working with you over the years, it seems like when I'm going through periods where I'm feeling overwhelmed, um, you, you can help pick me up and maybe vice versa as well. Mm -hmm. And so when we do this in community, we can all move forward together. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's much more, I think, effective than if we're trying to do this by ourselves. And we learn from each other. Oh, I mean, sure. there's so much to learn from because different people have different perspectives, mm -hmm. different worries, different, different understandings, and there's much to be, to be learned from each mm -hmm, other. Definitely. Yeah. So now I, I do suspect that when most people think about stewarding creation, they don't think about addressing racism. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that a main point that you're offering in this chapter? Yeah, it is. I, th uh -huh. I would say it is. Mm -hmm. I think there's a weakness with the Christian environmental stewardship paradigm. And one of its weaknesses is its lack of attention to race. Mm. So many white Christians have never considered how a person's race impacts their interaction with creation. White people in the United States have, have certain privileges, and it enables them to just ignore certain things. It's not right, necessarily, mm -hmm. but... Um, it's something that exists, and mm -hmm. I think with environmental um, issues, if, if, if a, person, a white person lives in an area where there's a lot of environmental degradation, they usually have resources and can move and can, mm -hmm. and can get away from it. And that's not always true for low-income people, and, and some people of color are in mm -hmm. situations where in their communities they don't have the, the political clout or the economic mm -hmm. clout to be able to just move and to resist what's happening in those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And when they don't have the, the, uh, the resources to be able, and they're not given voice to mm -hmm. be able to make change, that's an example of environmental mm -hmm. racism. Um, th that's, a, that's a great example. Can you give us, say, a more a straightforward working definition of environmental racism for, for listeners who maybe have not really been, um, have not be really been exposed to this sort of thought before? Well, the, the literature talks about environmental racism in kind of two, it, it's twofold. It's the unequal protection against environmental <clears throat> harm that people face. And it's also excluding people of color from environmental decisions that affect their communities. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of twofold. Mm -hmm. uh, there's always ethical and political questions that need to be raised about whose priorities d dominate when decisions are made about policies that impact the environment. Whose suffering is acknowledged, and who's ignored, who's included, mm -hmm. whose preferences count, and who is missing from the conversation. That's part of environmental racism. Mm -hmm. So in contrast, environmental justice, sure. it would be when, the fair, when there's fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, mm -hmm. regardless of their, their race, national origin, economic status, that sort of thing. And though all people have some voice in the development and the implementation of laws and policies and regulations related to the environment. So that the yeah. way they live in their community, they can be safe living in their community. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I talk about in this chapter is, you know, there are, there's a lot in the literature about mm -hmm. how toxic um, dumps and incinerators and those kinds mm -hmm. of things exist in certain parts of cities that often are, are where low income and communities of color are. Mm -hmm. and, the leaders in the environmental justice movement are people of color themselves who have risen up to say, this has got to stop. Mm -hmm. This is not fair treatment for the people that live in this community. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, th there's high asthma rates in certain urban neighborhoods be for a variety of, and that's, a, that's an environmental justice issue. 
Are you aware of some organizations that you think are doing a really good job of addressing environmental racism? Mm -hmm. I think there are. There are some very strong organizations. Mm -hmm. There's a whole national movement, an environmental justice movement, that's been going on probably since the 80s that is spearheaded and led by people of color. So that's, that's mm -hmm. sort of like a national movement. There's mm -hmm. not just one organization. But then like, within particular places, so I can think of in Michigan, for example, where, where we live, there's an environmental justice coalition, the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, that is doing phenomenal good work, I would say, all across the state. And they recently um, commissioned a study, and there are some grad students from the University of Michigan that did a major study of environmental justice in, or environmental injustice in the state of Michigan, and they have identified on maps hot spots where there's high levels of toxic degradation in certain areas and how that's affecting people. And, and, this, and this study just came out within the last month or two, and it's a mm -hmm. really in-depth, good study. So I think the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition is doing some really good work. Right. At a local level, there's two organizations that, that I think are doing really strong work. One is the Healthy Homes Coalition, and this is an organization that is trying to address environmental hazards in homes that affect children, particularly under the age of six. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, homes that were built before 1978 would automatically have paint in those houses that, is, that has lead-based paint in it. Mm -hmm. any, any home built between, before 1978 has lead-based paint. But in, in low-income communities, there's less there have been less resources to uh, uh, mitigate against this. And for example, with homeowners, there's, when you have a change of hands in homeownership, you have to prove that there's, there's been testing for lead you know, in mm -hmm. the, that home. But with, property, with rental property, there's mm. no laws in place. So, so many low-income people who are renters can move mm. into a, ho a home, and they have, the house has never been tested, and so they have no idea the, the degree of lead in, in, the, in the paint. And so the way it works in, with paint is, so for example, when you open and close a window, the friction that's caused by a window opening and closing can cause dust from the paint, uh -huh. lead dust, to settle on the windowsill and on the floor, and then children play and crawl through it, and then they can breathe it in. They can breathe it in, yeah. and they can they can ingest <coughs> it when they eat as well from their hands. Oh wow! So there's a the actually the highest incidence of childhood lead poisoning exists in in our city in mm. Grand Rapids. There are three zip codes in Grand Rapids where that incidence of childhood lead poisoning is higher than anywhere in the state, even with the even Flint with water. Flint. Wow. So, I, and I think the thing that what, what I want yeah. to say about this organization that I really think is, is phenomenal is they have, in the last couple of years, engaged um, parents and grandparents in those neighborhoods with the, with the high, and the zip codes with the high lead levels, and the parents and the grandparents are getting involved and uh -huh. organizing to address so their voice is heard, so, right. and so right. they, are, mm -hmm. they are playing an important role, a leadership mm -hmm. role, in trying to address change. Right. Great so, example of giving, uh, getting those people who are affected at the table when decisions are being made. That's right. Yeah. And then yes. the last organization is the one that's near and dear to both of us, mm -hmm. which is Plaster Creek Stewards. Mm -hmm. Plaster Creek, as I mentioned, is a, a creek, an urban waterway that's highly degraded over the last hundred years. And Plaster Creek Stewards is an initiative that Dave and I began 10 years ago to try to address the problems in this watershed. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we were really trying to do is understand what the problems are. So we were doing research to understand the, the, the degree of the problems. And then those research findings inform the restoration work that we're doing. But because we're a college, we also do a lot of education. So mm -hmm. that's a big part of the work we're doing, educating the public 
and not just students in our classrooms, but also K-12 schools and churches and mosques and neighborhood associations, neighborhood associations yes. and right. we do presentations in libraries, all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Dave, I think you should say what you often say about trying to change people's relationship to the, to the watershed. Well, sure. I think that um, what we have realized over time, this is not the approach we took at the start, but that the uh, contaminated creek is not the problem. It's much more um, a symptom. And the problem is that the people are not living carefully in the watershed. Their relationship to the creek is really what needs to be addressed and what needs to be improved. So we talk about reconciliation between people and their creek. And um, I think if we can address that relationship and help people realize uh, that there are things they can do to improve that relationship, just like you know, in their daily encounters with people, uh, spouses, children, colleagues, we have to make sure that those relationships stay healthy. And if they're not healthy, we need to address them. And so, um, so yeah, that's been really the focus, is trying to help people recognize that they're in a relationship with the non-human creation uh, that surrounds them, and that that's a relationship that deserves their attention. And by, for most people, it's a relationship that needs to be improved. That's right. Mm -hmm. And w most Americans don't even know what a watershed is, and mm -hmm. they don't think about a watershed and that they have an impact <clears throat> on, the, on their local watershed. So a, a watershed is an area of land that drains to a common point. So when mm -hmm. rain falls on the landscape or snow melts, it flows because of gravity across the landscape and then goes to, to often the lowest point, which is a creek or stream, and then that drains into a river and then a river drains it. So in this case, mm -hmm. Plaster Creek drains into the Grand River, which is the largest um, uh, river in West Michigan. And Grand, the Grand River drains into Lake Michigan and in Grand mm -hmm. Haven, which is one of the main five Great Lakes, of course. Mm -hmm. And then those drain into the St. Lawrence Seaway. So what we do in the Plaster Creek watershed Watershed impacts it's connected. It's so connected. the Grand River yes. and all the people that are downstream are impacted by the way we live and care for the water or don't mm -hmm. or the land and or how or or don't care for the land and water. Mm -hmm. So it affects the people downstream. So we often are talking about how do we encourage people to think about the way they live and how they're impacting the people that are downstream from mm -hmm. them. We or it's more likely for us to care about the people upstream of us who are taking care or not taking care of of the land and the water because it's going to mm -hmm. impact us but we have to also think about the people that are downstream from us mm -hmm. and how that impacts how we uh, live impacts them you know as you've been talking uh, i'm reminded that sometimes i hear from people how especially people concerned about say social justice issues how you know environmental concern is good but that's more of a luxury issue just for people who have extra income and can enjoy time out backpacking. Uh, but there's a priority here that first we need to address social concerns. And then if we get those together, then we can maybe move on to something less important like the environment. And what I hear you saying is that that's a real false dichotomy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, this is all interconnected. That's and, right. Uh, and to think about there's nature and there's people. Well, people are nature. And nature affects people, and people affect nature, and then by doing that, they're right. affecting other people. And it's all intertwined together. If we just think about social justice as relationships between people, and we don't think about justice in terms of environmental justice, mm -hmm. you have to, ha people need healthy, people and all creatures need healthy mm. places to live and thrive. If they don't live in a healthy place, they aren't going to be able to have healthy relationships. That's right. They're not going to be yeah. able to, 
to survive. Yeah. And so you need a healthy place to live just like you need healthy relationships with people. Yeah. And we need a healthy relationship with God. I mean, yes. all reconciliation is at multiple levels. Yeah, yeah, good, thanks. Let's, um, we've sort of gone off on a, a nice little tangent here, but let's, let's get back to your chapter a little bit. Is there a section uh, from your book um, that you would care to read for us that maybe emphasizes things that you really want to make sure the readers notice? Well, I will read just the last, the last paragraph sure, of, of the chapter because mm -hmm. I think that sort of summarizes um, what I think is most important. Mm -hmm. Christian environmental stewardship could be strengthened if people acknowledge the impact of race on human interaction with the creation. No one people group has all the answers to effective creation care, mm -hmm. but all groups have something to contribute. Empathic encounters between people from different racial groups will help Christians recognize mutuality and interdependence. Empathy calls us to wake up to what has been invisible in the past and commit to taking action to promote environmental justice. African-American theologian James Cone argues, only when whites realize that a fight against racism is a fight for their humanity too, will we be able to create a coalition of blacks, whites, and other people of color in the struggle to save mm -hmm. the earth. Mm -hmm. Christians interested in the work of reconciliation, so that's the end of the quote, then. Sure, back sure. to what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. Christians interested in the work of reconciliation, reconciling people to God, to each other, and to the earth, need to develop eyes to see what envir environmental racism has done, the honesty to lament its damage, mm -hmm. and the humility to learn from leaders of color, and the courage to collaborate in reimagining a way forward that brings healing and restoration for mm. all of creation. Oh, very nice. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, the, the target audience for Beyond Stewardship is Christians who have a passion for and concerns about the non-human creation. What do you hope that readers will take away from your chapter? Or how do you think your chapter assists people in this target audience to care better for the creation? Well, I think the first point that I'm trying to make with this chapter is that we need to pay attention and notice. Mm -hmm. And that's true at all kinds of levels. Not only mm -hmm. recognize the, the problem, the degradation that's happening in, um, in the way the earth is f functioning right now, mm -hmm. but we have to notice the brokenness in our relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. And until we recognize and acknowledge and see it, we cannot begin to make change. So mm -hmm. the first step is recognition and acknowledge it. And, and it, it takes courage and honesty to be able to, to say, I've never thought about environmental racism. Mm. I have no idea how that impacts yeah. people in my city or my neighborhood or my, my region. Right. Um, so to, to notice is the first thing, is uh -huh. to pay attention. I think we also then need to have relationships with people that are empathic relationships where we, mm. where we build a relationship and we know each other and we care about each other's lives and we have empathy for what's happening mm -hmm. in each other's lives. And when you have empathy, and you know real people who are impacted by yeah. these problems, then you're more going to be more likely to be motivated to take action. Mm -hmm. If it's just an issue that's out there and you don't know real people and you don't mm -hmm. have an empathic relationship or a, a mutual relationship with other people, you're not as likely to, to be motivated to take right. action. Right. So I think we have to have empathic encounters. You have to meet people. You have to know their joys and sorrows. You have to get involved. Right? Yep. Yes. But I also think we have to lament. I think yeah. that's, an, that's a piece of what I'm saying in this chapter too. We mm -hmm. have to lament what we have done mm -hmm. and what we've failed to do, mm -hmm. what we've ignored, what mm -hmm. we've not, not noticed, what we've not paid attention to. Mm -hmm. 
And once we, once we recognize, once we lament, once we have empathy, then we, that's sort of the steps that have to happen. Then mm -hmm. we can begin to think about together, how do we try to bring restoration? Mm -hmm. What steps can we take? Mm -hmm. How can we be a part of the, the solution rather than a part of the continuing problem? It seems to me that a lot of times when things get uncomfortable and we find ourselves getting sad about certain situations, especially if we're complicit, our tendency is to turn aside and, and ignore it or not spend a lot of time thinking about that because we're uncomfortable with the sadness that emerges. And what you're saying is, no, we need to go directly at that sadness and let that sadness become a motivator. Mm -hmm. um, for, de for developing new ways to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. thank you, I like that a lot. How, how do yeah. you see the difference between sadness and lament? Is yeah. there a difference? I, it seems to me, I hadn't thought about this a lot, but it seems to me that lament has a real strong component of regret as well. Uh -huh. I mean, I can be sad um, if on the way home today you get in a car crash and you break your arm. Let's not make it too dramatic. Um, I would feel so sad that my friend Gail now has a broken arm and she's got to deal with this car business. Um, but I wasn't involved in the car crash. I didn't cause it to happen. Um, I didn't even tell you, you better speed home and get home quick because Ken's waiting for you for supper or something. Mm -hmm. I wasn't complicit. And so I'm sad but I'm not lamenting it as much. You're not as regretting. It, yeah, there's, the regret isn't there. And I think that with lament, a big part of that sadness is fueled by, by regret because you realize that you have been involved either by what you have done or by what you have failed to do. And then mm -hmm. there's the, that, yeah, it adds, a, it adds a different component to the sadness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when we recognize our complicity, Lament is, is, yeah. and, and sorrow. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word too, I think. Deep sorrow is like... Mm -hmm. yeah. And in some ways I feel like we need to ask forgiveness to yeah. our brothers and sisters yeah. who we've harmed in neighborhoods and places that we haven't even realized we've done it. Yeah, it's not enough just for us to be sorry by ourselves, but we need to let people know who have been affected that we feel so badly about this and we ask them for forgiveness. I think that's a really important. If you look at some of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that have been set up around the, glo the globe, mm -hmm. that is such a powerful moment when the perpetrators ask forgiveness from those who were affected by, by the, what they had done. Um, and, and, and you can't ask for forgiveness unless you're acknowledging and yes, recognizing that you've, that's right. you've done something wrong. That's right. We have done something wrong. I have done something that's wrong. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the process that we went through with this book, I, I'd like to get your feedback a little bit on that. Um, so it involved a lot of collaborative work. This is not just an activity where you were in your office writing your chapter and then you submitted it for the book. But there was a lot of activity that went on with, uh, among chapter writers and other people that we brought in. Um, can you share an anecdote or a story about your involvement in this project, especially that collaborative aspect of it that sticks out in your mind as you think back over those days that we spent together? I, I think the whole, I can't think of just one anecdote. Mm -hmm. I think of the whole process. Mm -hmm. So the way you and Matt structured the, the project, we had two three-day working sessions. And 
they were working sessions. Mm -hmm. They were not just sort of sitting around talking about nice ideas. Mm -hmm. It was that too, but we also really worked hard. So the first, the first um, session, the first three days, we really worked hard to think about what's a story mm -hmm. that captures what you think is important in the chapter you want to write that will bring a reader, that will engage a reader to think and want to read the whole chapter. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and then we went back and forth talking with each other about these stories and it was yeah. very iterative. So can you, can you tweak it this way? Can you deepen it that way? Let me ask you some questions. Yeah. That made it a much richer process because we were really um, interacting with each other in a collaborative way. Right. I think by the end of the first working session, we had to have a, a thesis developed. And that also was very iterative. Yes. So we, everybody worked on a thesis statement and then we, we gave each other specific feedback back and forth a, a number of times mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to refine it and hone it. And, and we were challenged. I mean, yeah. some people really had to think differently about what they were saying and it yeah. was really good. And then the second three-day time together, We'd, everybody had written a first draft of their chapter by then, and we brought that draft to the session and helped each other edit. And mm -hmm. boy, that was such a rich experience mm -hmm. to have people read and give you concrete suggestions, ask you questions. Mm -hmm. Why did you say this? Do you realize you're making a leap from this idea to this idea? Mm -hmm. The reader's not going to understand how you jumped from that spot to this spot. How can you flesh this out better? The whole process was mm -hmm. very collaborative. Mm -hmm. and. And I think the, the outcome, the, the product that we have is mm -hmm. much stronger and richer because of the great interaction we have with each other. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but I think early on, I don't know if it was the first three-day session or the second, we told the authors, Matt and I, uh, that we wanted them to write an essay that would not be publishable anyplace else other than this book, right? That it would fit in this book, but they couldn't just submit it to a professional journal and get it published there because it wouldn't make sense to those editors. But we wanted it really to hang together with the other chapters and follow a common uh -huh. kind of uh, structure. So, yeah, good. Those are uh, nice memories to bring back. We had, I mean, it was hard work. It was very hard but work, but it was but me really meaningful good. work. Yeah, uh -huh. and it improved it improved the product for all of us, I think. Now, if someone is interested in finding out more about the work that you do or env about environmental justice, what uh, are there places that you could direct them? Or where could they find out some more information? Well, if, if they're interested in learning more about Plaster Creek Stewards, mm -hmm. we have a great website, and that's available on the calvin.edu, go Plaster Creek Stewards, and mm -hmm. you, you can get a lot of resources there. There's lots of ideas about what can be done on a person's like individual property mm -hmm. to care for the land and water in mm -hmm. such a way that you're helping a watershed. It's important to know that no matter where you live in the world, we always live and exist in a watershed. That's so right. even if you're not in the Plaster Creek watershed, uh -huh. the ideas that might be on the Plaster Creek Stewards website mm -hmm. are transferable to other places. Mm -hmm. so, Good. so that's one thing I think you could do. The other thing mm -hmm. is, um, before we started the, re the, the session today, we were talking about um, a, a future project, an upcoming project. Mm -hmm. And Dave and I are working now also on a, another book that is a cultural natural history of Plaster Creek or the watershed and part of it is an or is oral history so we've interviewed mm -hmm. oh probably 80 more than 80 people who have all different kinds of memories all ages of people of their experience of living or working or going to school or church in the Plaster Creek watershed so this is an exciting project it'll probably mm -hmm. be another year or two until it's completely finished but that's a, that's an yeah. upcoming project that that we're working on mm -hmm. good all right, thank you very much, Gail. Uh, this brings us to the end of this episode 
of the Beyond Stewardship podcast. Thank you so much, Gail, for joining me in this conversation. Oh, today. thanks for the conversation. All right, and goodbye, everyone. Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at calvin.edu slash press and from major online retailers. Thank you.